I'm grateful for David Ketty, who was here with us last week. Uh, we were looking at Psalm 16 last week, but this week we are back looking at Luke chapter 24. Easter Sunday was, was two weeks ago on our calendar, but in Luke 24, it's still Easter Sunday. We looked at verses 1 to 12 on Easter, and this morning we're going to read from verses 13 to 35. The words will be on the screen uh, when I read in a, in a minute, but if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to uh, to get that out uh, so you can look at it. If you don't have a Bible, you can feel free to grab one of the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks. Luke 24, verse 13, uh, is on page 1125 of that, that Bible. It's a bit of an extended story. Only Luke records it, but it's one of the great texts in the Bible. So if you're able, let me ask you to stand as I read the passage aloud. And when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and then invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he broke the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon." Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If I were in Nashville a couple of weeks ago, if I were even among you today, and I said to you three words, if I said to you, Nashville, church, tragedy, you would know exactly what I was talking about, right? School shooting there made national news, of course, even more impactful, closer to home. This is a congregation that is a part of our denomination. 
So most of you know about the incident. And if you didn't, particularly if you were in Nashville a couple of weeks ago, someone might say to you, are you the only person who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I was looking on the church, uh, uh, church website for Covenant Presbyterian Church um, a few weeks ago to see what text they preached the week after the shooting occurred. That would have been April 2nd, Sunday, April 2nd. I was just curious. And you know what passage they went to? They went to Luke 24, 13 to 35, this passage that we just read. Now, they weren't in a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke like we are, and it would have been otherwise, if you think about it, kind of silly to pick a post-resurrection text the week before Easter, as if like that would be part of some sort of a plan. No, they just said, you know what we need? <laughs> you know what we need now? We need the story of Jesus walking with His two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, we're coming as part of a plan that started in January that has brought us from Jesus' entry into Jerusalem all the way through His resurrection, but I think it's also a very relevant text for us for some of the same reasons, because we live in a world where Nashvilles happen, and by that I mean where things don't always seem to go according to, to plan. I don't know what their original sermon text for that Sunday was, but I would pretty much guarantee it wasn't going to be Luke 24, 13 to 35. And we can pretty much assume that as we plan out our lives, there will be times when what we had thought was going to happen is not going to happen exactly the way that it ends up happening. And some of those times, it's not going to be something that we would have desired or thought was good. For example, what if we look at what David Ketty read to us last week from Psalm 16, where King David, not the same David, not David Ketty, King David wrote, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And what if you read that, like I'm sure probably many of the people in Nashville at that church, at Covenant Church, might have said those, that week after the, the shooting. And what if they said, quite honestly, I'm not exactly seeing it right now. The boundary lines around my life are not feeling too pleasant right now. In fact, I would like to call someone to resurvey because I think I'd like them redrawn. What if, even as you're trying to trust God, you don't know what He's doing or how He's doing, how what He's doing is fitting into some sort of bigger plan? Well, that's how these disciples were feeling. All right, so let's look at what happened to them because this is a great story. And we'll just walk right through it sort of as we go, building application into it for us. And we can just follow the outline that's printed in the In the bulletin, I want to look first, verses 13 to 18, at the questions we're asking. And then I want to look, verses 19 to 24, at the answer we need. And then verses 25 to 32, the connection we're missing. And finally, the response that follows. You got that? This is the thesis. In a world of uncertainty and confusion, here we have in front of us the questions we're asking, the answer we need, the connection we're missing, and the response that follows. Now, first, let's look at the questions we're asking. Go back to verse 13. Look at these two. Who are they? What were they doing? Well, we only know one of their names, Cleopas. Lots of speculation through the years about who the other person might be. Commentators say lots of different things. We do know that they were disciples of Jesus because it says two of them, meaning followers of of Jesus. It's probably not, uh, we know Cleopas isn't, but probably the other guy is not probably one of the inner circle of disciples because later Luke tells us that these two went back to Jerusalem and found the 11, so they wouldn't have been a part of the 11, you know, the original 12 disciples minus Judas. All right, now where were they going? Well, they were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Luke tells us that was about a seven-mile walk. Perhaps these two men were just returning 
home, maybe uh, going back after, uh, after the Passover, looking for uh, what was next for them, trying to figure out what life was going to be, be like after everything that they had experienced. That's what we do when we're in a world that's turned upside down, when we don't know what's going on. We head towards the familiar. We head towards home, to places of safety where we can have space to, to think. And as they're heading there, along comes Jesus. Well, we know it's Jesus because Luke tells us. They don't know it's Jesus. They didn't recognize Him. Maybe because there was something different about his, about his resurrection body. But it also seems as if God's at work in some way here. Notice what it says. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. In other words, God is keeping them from knowing that it's Jesus, at least knowing right away. Why? Well, we don't know. But we can assume that if God's the one who is behind it, that it's not time yet. That's something we need to learn to trust at times as well, right? That Jesus, that Jesus is with us even when we don't recognize it. And that there are times, maybe, where He keeps our eyes from being able to recognize everything that He is doing. And we need to learn to trust that even in that, He might be up to something. And Jesus is up to something. Jesus asks them in verse 17, what are you talking about? And Cleopas basically says, my translation, have you been under a rock? I was working in Center City, uh, Philadelphia in 2008 when the Phillies won the, won the World Series, and the parade went right down Market Street, right in front of where my office building was. And so I went down to watch it. Imagine the reaction if I go onto the street in the middle of the championship parade and I turned to someone and said, hey, what's, all the, what's the parade for? Right? Same reaction. Right? Except remember that what these guys are doing here, right? this isn't just gossip and fascination about current events, right? This is very personal. In verse 17, it says, they stopped, they looked at, at Jesus, and they, and they were looking sad, right? They're, they're talking about, like, real things of life, real areas of disappointment. They're asking the same questions that we would be asking in a similar kind of situation, right? And we don't ask them at a championship parade, right? We ask them at a funeral, right? We ask them in the middle of the night. We ask them in a doctor's office, what's gone wrong? What did I miss? How do I make sense of, of failed expectations? And this stranger, at least in their mind at this point, doesn't seem to get it. And he just asks them another question. But see, Jesus is there to teach. And this is how he's going to do it. This is classic Jesus. He does this a lot, this kind of a thing. He's leading them, he's leading them to the answer to their questions by asking them questions. And in their response to what Jesus asks them, when he says, you know, they say like, you know, don't you have, where, where were you? Like, what, what's going on? Everybody knows what was happening, the things that were happening in Jerusalem over the last couple of days. And he says, what things? Right? And in that question, he gets them to bring out the foundation of the answer they need and the answer we need. Right? Notice that Jesus doesn't jump into talking first. He just lets them talk. And I won't read verses 19 to 24 again, but I want you to see the three parts of their answer of what they say, that what they say in these three parts are exactly what we need. It's exactly what they needed, even if they didn't fully understand it or know how all the pieces fit together. Right, look at what they say. Verse 19, they say, well, there was this guy, Jesus. It's hilarious. They're talking to him, right? There's this guy. His name was Jesus. And, 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 and he was, here's the important part, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. In other words, part one, they're saying there was this guy, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, deed and word. He did the right things. He said the right things. He did them, he did them all perfectly. 
right? That's part one. Now, verse 20, they say, but he was betrayed, condemned, and executed. In other words, he was unjustly condemned to death. There you got part two. Jesus died a criminal death even though he was innocent, right? So part one, and they say that there was this guy, Jesus, and he was perfect. Part two, but he was condemned as a criminal, right? Then verses 22 to 24, they say, but the funniest thing happened. Some of our women went to the tomb where he was buried and he was gone. And the angels told them that Jesus was alive again. In other words, part three, Jesus is resurrected to life even though he had been dead. Now, what do we have in those three parts? There was this guy, Jesus, and he lived a perfect life and he was condemned to the death of a criminal, but after he died, he rose again. In that, we have the gospel. All right, what is the gospel? All right, what is the good news of Christianity? It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for your salvation. That's what it is. There is, there is this Jesus who lived perfectly, died sacrificially, and rose victoriously. And these two disciples had all the basic pieces they needed to answer that already. And because Jesus pulled out these three core parts of the gospel from them, he's showing them, he's teaching them, you've got the facts. It's not really a problem with the facts. And instead of immediately answering them with words, Jesus allows them to see that what they already knew was the starting point to the answer they need. Sissy Goff, a woman named Sissy Goff, is a counselor at Daystar Counseling Ministries, just north of Covenant Presbyterian Church in, in Nashville. Tuesday morning after the shooting, she was interviewed by CNN, and she was cold, she was nervous, and, um, and, she, and she says that she, she noticed right before they did the interview, right, she's standing there at the entrance to the, the church grounds, right before she's doing the interview, she turns around and she says, I saw this sign on it, this banner out in front of the, the church entrance that just said in real big letters, Easter. Right? That there, was, there was Easter in these large letters, and I just thought to myself, there it is. She said it had been the darkest day of her experience in Nashville, and next to it all is a sign for Easter that says that this is not the end. Life out of death light out of darkness. That's the answer they needed. And here's the point. Here's the point. It was something they already knew. In other words, it was already what the church had planned to say. Sometimes the answer to the question is what we had already known and what we had already planned to say. We just don't fully grasp the significance or connect all the pieces. The disciples knew the answer. Or at least they knew the facts. They had the raw material. The pieces were on the board. What they were missing was how everything connected together, which is what then Jesus provides. Point number three, the connection we're missing. Back to verse 25, right? Now it's Jesus' turn to talk. Time for the two disciples to listen. And what he does next has rightly been called the greatest Bible story lesson in the history of Bible studies. All right, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's one of the most important verses in the entire Bible, if you are going to understand how to read the Bible. Right? Because what Jesus is doing for them is he's putting the pieces together. He's making the connection. He's showing them how the things that just happened in Jerusalem are the necessary result of what the scripture has been talking about all along, for thousands of years. Kids, what's the Bible about? Right? What's it about? If you're describing, like, what's, what's the story of the Bible? Uh, on the front of the bulletin, I, I put a quote from a, a woman named Sally Lloyd-Jones, and she, she explains it better 
than, than I can in a book that she wrote for kids. She says that some people think of the Bible primarily as a book of rules. Other people think of it as primarily um, a, a book about heroes, lots of different stories about different heroes. And she says the Bible does have rules and the Bible does have men and women where, where we can learn from, from them and the things that they do. But this is what she says. She says there's lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves His children and comes to rescue them. She says it takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. There is Jesus. Every story in the Bible whispers His name. This is what she says. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see the beautiful picture. What do these disciples want? What had they been hoping for? They tell us in verse 21, we had hoped that this Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. They wanted a rescuer. They wanted a hero from the pain of their lives, from from the oppression of the world, a rescuer who would come and save them, who would lead them to victory over their enemies. Like Noah, out of the flood, lead us to safety. Like Moses from Egypt, lead us from, from, uh, from, from, from slavery, right? Like Joshua at Jericho, lead us against our enemies. Like Samson and David from the Philistines. And what Jesus does is start at the very beginning of the books of Moses, and go all the way through the prophets. The language of verse 27 is all-inclusive of the entire Old Testament. And he shows these two confused, grieving disciples how Jesus is the puzzle piece that fits everything together. And he may have cited specific prophecies about the Messiah. He may have gone to Daniel chapter 7 where Messiah is, is called the Son of Man who would come from God and who would at the same time be God and have everlasting rule. He may have gone to some of the prophecies in the Psalms in Psalm 2 where the Messiah is the son whose inheritance is the nations and the king who becomes the refuge for God's people. He may have gone to Isaiah 53 where the Messiah is the the suffering servant whose sufferings pay for the sins of the people. He may have gone to specific prophecies like that. But all of the the, the books of Moses and all of the prophets contain more than just a few specific prophecies about Jesus and, and how Jesus is going to come someday. No, the point is that the entire historical arc of God's redeeming His people, the whole storyline is one that points and climaxes in Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ultimate return are the goal of the entire meta-narrative of the Bible. Right? Because he's the descendant of the woman in Genesis 3.15 whose heel is going to be bruised so that the serpent could be crushed. He's Noah's ark in whom we take refuge from the judgment of God. He's the greater Abraham who leaves his home to make a place for his people. He's the goat who is sacrificed so that Isaac can be unbound. He's the greater Moses who leads his people out of slavery. He's the sacrificial lamb on the day of atonement, and he is the priest who presents that sacrifice. He is the true Samson who shows his strength at his most vulnerable moment of being abused, sacrificing himself to defeat the enemies of the true God. He's the eternal king in the line of David who will rule forever. He's the perfect Solomon, the true embodiment of wisdom, and he's the temple who will rise again when when the walls are brought down. And he's the prophet who always speaks the truth when we need to hear it, even when he's being rejected and ignored. He's the puzzle piece that makes it all fit and the connection that we're all missing. Let it be a settled principle in our minds, J.C. Ryle says, in reading the Bible, that Christ is the central sum of the whole book. 
So long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in our search for spiritual knowledge. The key of the Bible, the key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ. The key, the puzzle piece, the missing connection. Now, what does that mean practically? In other words, how does that really work at the moment of uncertainty in our lives or just simply in the daily decisions of our life? It means that the burden of living in a broken world or making hard decisions in an imperfect life is always made easier by stepping back and drawing back to see yourself in the context of a larger, bigger story. For all of the legitimacy and the need for for, for spiritual counsel and specific applications to individual situations, as necessary as that is to push this down deep into individual lives, as important as that can be, what we need most at the moments of greatest uncertainty, what you need most from a Sunday morning sermon is not a how-to list and a motivational story. What you need to be reminded of from the very words of the Bible is, is the entire narrative of human history and how God has weaved redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ into this world. You need to see a big God revealed from the Bible whose love for you brought Jesus to this world to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, and raise to a victorious resurrection for you. That's what we need. The associate pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Billy Barnes, that sounds like a doesn't that sound like a Tennessee pastor kind of name, Billy Barnes? He was in charge. He was put in charge of a prayer meeting on the Wednesday after the, the shooting. And Billy Barnes says, because it was me who was put in charge of it, that means that it wasn't very well organized. He said he just, he, he just thought he would read a few passages of Scripture and then invite people to do the same. So he got in front of this big group and he read a couple passages of Scripture. And then he, he sat down. And as he sat down, he thought to himself, boy, this could be a train wreck is this could be a really long night because he, I, I, it just dawned on me. Like, I didn't come with any specific words of counsel. I didn't come with any specific words of, of wisdom. I didn't come with anything. And he said people then just, they just started standing up and reading and reading. They weren't offering their own thoughts. They were just reading passages from the Bible. And he said it is the most encouraging thing that could have possibly happened. Why? There was nothing new in what they said. It had all been written down thousands of years before. Right? There was nothing that specifically spoke to their exact situation in the last week of March of 2023. All right, but do you see? That's exactly the point. Jesus comes onto the road to Emmaus, walks alongside the disciples on a specific day in human history, and then he pulls them out of it to show them the bigger picture. Right? Have you ever seen one of those... Um, we can do it now with modern technology and stuff. One of those shots like starts with like, you know, like a person and then it like it slowly goes back to like a satellite image and then you've got the world and then you've got the universe and, and stuff, right? It, that's what it's like. It's, like. it's like starting with you. Like he was there on the road on this day with these two people and it's like he just is constantly bringing it back until he finally gives them a picture of the universe and how they fit into it. That's what we need, to be reminded of the big God, to be reminded of the big story, and to be reminded of the Savior's sacrifice whose pain will ultimately heal ours. Now, I don't have, to go, I have time to go into the, 
the details. But the eyes of these two disciples, they, they were opened. It happens after they get to the village, presumably you know, one of their homes. They invite Jesus to, zin- to dinner, and he, and he breaks the bread, and he gives thanks. And as he does that, it says it clicks. Right? Their, their eyes were opened, it says, and they recognized him. Right? Now, this wasn't the Lord's Supper that they were celebrating, though it's possible maybe something in the way that he said it reminded them of something the disciples had told them about how that had gone down. Right? Or maybe it was just the, you know, just the language that he used, the, the common language of thanksgiving at, the, at a table where a meal was happening where they had, hey, we had heard, we heard Jesus pray like that before, right? And they just, and they just knew, right? However it happens exactly, after that it says Jesus vanishes, Right? Don't ask me to explain exactly that. Right? Lots of different theories as to what happens. Again, there's something might, may, must be different about this resurrection body. It was a real physical body. He was really there. He was really eating with them. And yet there's something different about it. Right? It's as if he just sort of you know, folds into, into space and time and, 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 and vanishes. One way or the other, they don't seem to mind because, because what he had been telling them on the road, it, it all now makes sense. Right? It, it just it, it, it clicks together now. And then what do they do? Last point, right? This is the response that follows now, right? They go back to Jerusalem. They tell the disciples, the Lord has risen indeed, right? They told them what happened to them on the road. They told them about dinner, right? But get this. This is what I find fascinating. They didn't wait until morning, right? They went right then, They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. That same hour, that's what it says in verse 33. Now, this is fascinating because just a little bit ago, they had made the case to Jesus, who was just a stranger to them at the time, that he should spend the night with them because because it was toward evening and the day is now far spent. It was dangerous to travel at night, right? There were no street lights. There was no state police on the highways. You could get hurt. just makes sense to wait until, until morning for further travel, unless, I suppose, you have news that can't wait. Right? Then the danger is worth it. It doesn't mean that you don't consider the risk. It doesn't mean that you don't act wisely to mitigate risk. But the importance of the news changes the calculation about whether the benefit outweighs the risk. Do you view the news of the risen Jesus in that way? Is he worth the risk? Is taking the news of the risen Jesus to people who have not heard, is it worth the risk? And it isn't just those who haven't heard that we need to tell about the risen Jesus, right? We need to be continually telling one another. That's why we're here. Let me conclude with this thought. Right? In verse 35, it says that they shared with the other disciples what had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them. That's what they shared. They shared what had happened. This is what happened. This is where, this is where it clicked. This is where it made sense. There is a power that we have for one another in each of our stories. Every Christian has one. That moment or that process in which Jesus reveals himself to us, to you. When he opened our eyes to see who he really was, to understand what he had really done. Sometimes it's a day we can point to. Sometimes it's a specific hour. I remember the moment, someone might say, right? Sometimes, like more in my case, it's years of questions and conversations. But at some point, it happens. When we see our individual stories folded into the larger, big story of how God is redeeming the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how that applies specifically to us, and then we see, or at least we catch a glimpse of the director behind the stage, the director of the play who's in control of every scene after all. And that's what they were talking about. That's what they were remembering together. That's what a church does. 
Uh, Pastor Billy Barnes, Covenant Church, said that, uh, in it, this is in his April 2nd sermon on this text, that he's recently been singing a lot that, um, that Andrew Peterson song, Is He Worthy? Right? We sing that song here sometimes, right? You remember that song? It's a call and response kind of song about the worthiness of Jesus to, to be the one who fixes the brokenness of the world and clears away the shadows. Right? And all because he's worthy, all because he's the one whom the Scripture had foretold would come and would die and redeem God's people. Right? It's a song that recognizes powerfully both the pain of this world and the hope of the resurrection. And it says in that song, this is what he pointed out, that we ought to be telling one another about these things, reminding each other, right? Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Call and response. Two weeks ago, we heard the angels speak about Jesus. He is risen this week from the lips of these two ordinary disciples who had encountered a personal Jesus. From their lips, we hear the spoken response for the first time. He is risen, and they say, He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the change that you bring about in our lives and in this world through what you have done through Jesus. We thank you that all of human history up to that moment of his death and resurrection pointed forward to it. We thank you that all of us look back to it now and see it as the climax and the hinge that enables our salvation, that secures for us an eternity of being able to praise your name because of what you have done. So Lord, apply it to our hearts. Make us bold proclaimers of this. Allow us to go and to tell what you have done, the news that you are risen, the news that you have appeared to us, that you have changed us, that you have made the connection in our hearts. Allow us, Lord, to boldly tell it to others and allow us to remind each other of its truth so that we might be encouraged in the moments of our lives where we need to see what we cannot see. Where we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.